You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, we're going to be, we're going to be all over the place today. Uh, but I figured a good passage to kind of set the tone for us would be Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 4 through 6, which is uh, a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments that are given to uh, the people of God. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word because we believe it is to be, that it is authoritative from Genesis through Revelation, that it is the Word of God. And so Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 4, this is the Word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. I will not be preaching on that passage today, but I do want to highlight it one of the topics in the series, questionable, that was submitted was a topic on the Trinity, which I've never really dedicated a whole sermon to. So let me just say a couple things at the front end of this sermon so that you're not disappointed. You may leave here more confused <laughs> than you came in. Uh, there is no way that I'm going to be able to exhaust what the Bible teaches concerning the Trinity in one sermon. Uh, it's just impossible. My head hurt all week this week as I was preparing the sermon, thinking, how can I say this in a way that's helpful and uh, makes sense, and at the same time, with the, in- the intention that I'm going to preach on the Trinity sometime this summer. So I will take, I don't know how many weeks, but I will we'll take our time just unpacking what, what does the Bible teach concerning the Trinity? How can God be one and three at the same time? And so I will, and I believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible supports that. I believe I can defend it, and I believe it's black and white. But, but I don't have time in one sermon to do all of that for you. What I hope to do is just to demonstrate that the Bible actually teaches that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I hope to do. The other thing that I want to express is that if God is not a triune being, if he is not a trinity, which I'm going to define in a, minute, in a little bit, uh, I'm going to give you some, the history behind how we came up with the word trinity, because you will read through the Bible and you will not find the word trinity in it. What I want to do is give you a little history of how we, where this word came from, and just kind of picture it like the way I was, I was describing it to uh, my, my boys was this, my sons. It's kind of like we're going to start off at 30,000 feet and just kind of get the plane a little lower, and you'll be able to see the details as we get lower and lower. And uh, my hope is that by the end of this, you will be able to walk out of here saying, yes, the Bible tr- teaches that God is three persons, one God. Can't wrap my mind fully around that, but I see it in the Scriptures. That's my hope. But if, you, if, the, Bible is not, if the Bible does not teach that God is a trinity then for over 2,000 years we've gotten the nature of God wrong and we've been guilty of idolatry. That's a serious thing. 
if you reject the Trinity, and that is what the Bible, and the Bible teaches that God is a triune being, then you've gotten God wrong, and you're guilty of idolatry. And so, this is a serious thing. This is why I thought, okay, yes, I, I, we, we will address this. I don't want you to be confused. It's really important to me. So, so there's that. The other thing is, is that in our doctrinal statement on our website, the very first statement on our doctrinal statement is this. We believe in one living and true God who is self-existent, eternal and infinite, who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in essence, though distinct in personality. You cannot be a partner at Meadowbrook Church or teach or participate in ministries that are on a teaching level at Meadowbrook Church if you reject that first doctrinal statement. So it's, it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. So with that being said, <laughs> I just want to uh, share a little bit about the, the, the history as a way of demonstrating that there's good reason why, why the church has identified what men and women have seen in the scriptures as it relates to who God is as a trinity. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter delivers a sermon. I, I wanted to talk about Peter's sermon. Um, we just don't have time. I would encourage you, if you're looking at the slides and taking notes, take, use your phone to take pictures of the slides. We're, this is gonna be, I got like 37 slides. We're going to breeze through this. And then my manuscript will be available online sometime early this week. But for 300 years, following Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is when the church was birthed, on the day of Pentecost. I wanted to go into all that because I was geeking out over that. It's such a great thing that happened. Jesus died on, the day, on, on Passover week. He was, he, he, he was ex, executed on Friday, which was the, the last day of the work week. He was buried, and on Saturday, he was in the tomb on the Sabbath, and then on Sunday, the first day of the work week in the Jewish calendar, he rose from the grave, which is, a, which is you know, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, on the first day, God created the heavens on the earth, and on the last day, he, he declared it all very good, and, and, and then on the seventh day, he rested. There's, there's, it's not a mistake that Jesus died on Friday, and he rose on the first day of the, of the week. So there's that. wanted to go into all that. Peter delivers a sermon. Uh, I'd encourage you to read it. And then 300, for 300 years, from the birth of the church up until Constantine came to be uh, emperor, over, over the Roman Empire, uh, the church, it was illegal to be a Christian. You, you would, it was like a death sentence in many places in the world, especially in the West, and so under the Roman Empire. It was a death sentence. When you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and committed to following him, you, were, you, were, you understood in those 300 years you might die for your faith. There was a, there was a guy a uh, church leader by the name of Tertullian. He lived in A.D. 155 through 220. So this is the, into the second century. He's an early church father. He, uh, he's the guy who coined the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the, is the seed of the church. He was an apologist. He defended the, 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 the scriptures against heresies. He's the one who came up with the Latin word uh, trinitas, this was not from some pagan background. Constantine had nothing to do with it. 
These were church fathers, who, or these, these men of God who were expounding the scriptures and, and, and they were seeing the Trinity, which is assumed from Genesis all through Revelation. Uh, it's assumed there, and I'll get into that in a minute. And, and so he came up with the word Trinitas, or Trinity. That's where we get the word, English word from. He didn't invent the Trinity. He, he wasn't influenced by pagan, pagan beliefs. He was a defender of the faith. He also said, just to demonstrate that the belief in the Trinity actually goes way as I mean, we see it in the scriptures. Some people say, well, we're, you know, because the word Trinity isn't there, then therefore the Bible doesn't teach it. You know, when did this, this notion of a Trinity come into being? Well, I'll demonstrate from the Bible, but, but early church fathers. Tertullian said this, we worship unity and trinity, and trinity and unity, neither confounding the person or dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And so, uh, and I, I, we'll go back a little further, fast forward a little bit uh, to about 300 A.D., under the reign of Emperor Constantine, who legalized, he had, I don't know like, if he generally converted or not. Some people don't think, think it was a political decision. Other people think it was genuine. I don't know. I don't care. What, what I do know is that he, uh, he, he supposedly gave his life to Jesus, uh, converted from, pagan, from some form of paganism to Christianity, uh, and legalized Christianity and made it the, the main religion of the empire. So no longer was the church, did the church have to hide and study the Bible. Now the church, Christians could study the Bible in public. It was, a, it was now sanctioned by the Roman Empire to be a Christian. And so w under that umbrella, there was this bishop by the name of Alexander of Alexandria who invited a group of guys to come and let's so he basically invited them, bring a hard, difficult Old Testament passage, bring it with you, and let's meet for a Bible study and we'll talk about it. So they had a Bible study together. So they had this Bible study, and uh, one of the members, or one of the guys that showed up to that Bible study, now these are theologians, these are respected church leaders, was a guy by the name of Arius. And Arius was supposedly reading uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. We don't have time. I'd encourage you to just read it sometime. But he was reading that. And the, the, the tradition or the history or the understanding of Proverbs chapter 8 is that it was referring to Christ before Christ was even born. And so he's reading this proverb, and he just shares with these guys. He says, so uh, when I read this passage, I'm just... I'm just retelling the story, I'm paraphrasing. When I, when I read this passage, it seems to me that the Bible teaches that Jesus was begotten, that he was created, that he was the, the first created being before the rest of creation, but nonetheless, he was created. The other bishops that were gathered there were like, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we read in our Bible. So they had this dialogue so Arius was a popular teacher, and, and you know, there were people who followed him, and he had people who were you know, listening to him teach. And so this view that Jesus was created became more and more popular in 300-something A.D. Uh, 
And, and Alexander and his contemporaries were like, no, this is, this is something that the apostles taught. This is something that, are, you know, that, that Christians have believed since the birth of the church. So this was like, a, picture it this way, this Bible study with Arius and his teaching, uh, his teaching was kind of like this, like a spark that just erupted into this flame that threatened to divide the church in Rome. So Constantine, some people think Constantine was a Trinitarian. He was not. He actually was sympathetic towards Arius. He was baptized by one of Arius's friends and contemporaries who sided with Arius. Uh, but Constantine called this gathering, he, he called uh, church leaders and theologians from the East and from the West. So he wanted a full representation of capital C church or universal church. In the Nicene Creed, it uses the word Holy Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church didn't exist yet. Uh, it's talking about universal. That's what Catholic means. They gather together. Constantine wants to gather them together at this place called Nicaea. So some of you are starting to connect the dots. And out of that came a creed called the Nicene Creed. So they, so they gather the, the, these, these theologians and these church leaders together from the East and the West. One of those guys who gathered was, was Arius, who was a bishop also, and others who shared or were at least sympathetic to his view. So they formed this council, they met together. Just so you know, Arius wasn't some weird, flaky dude. He was a conservative Christian who couldn't reconcile passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How could God be one and be three persons? So he struggled with that. So they formed this council, and the majority, with the exception of two, sided with Alexander, the bishop, you know, and not just Alexander, but others, that Jesus was not created, that he existed for all of eternity. And not only did they side with, with that view, they also deemed what was also known as Arianism as heretical. Constantine honored the ruling of the Nicene Council. Arius was, was exiled, and all of his works were burned. That's why we don't have any of his works that I'm aware of in, in existence. We might have like more like secondhand information of, of his works. Now, one of the other things that was submitted, one of the other topics that was submitted in the 40 submissions for the sermon series was if I could talk about Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and cults. The Watchtower Society, Jehovah Witness, and Mormons in a weird kind of way, uh, reject the doctrine of the Trinity. We would call that Arianism. There are a number of cults that, that reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Arianism. I don't think Arius was thinking, oh, let's start a cult. He was, tr he was trying to reconcile what he was reading in the Bible. They uh, deemed him a heretic also, or his teachings heretical. And then Constantine's son, who was, who was more sympathetic to Arius than Constantine himself was, uh, Constantine's son, when he came to power, uh, forced those who believe that Jesus existed for all of eternity into exile, like Alexander and some others. Uh, and, and so you had this, this thing going back and forth. I say that so that you know that, that we stand on the shoulders who, the, of those who have gone before us, and this battle over whether or not God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God, this battle has been fought and won. Uh, by and large. And that's why for 2,000 years we have in our doctrinal statements a statement on the Trinity. So the Nicene Creed was, 
was put together, and it was, I'll have the words on the screen. I'm not going to ask you to read it just for sake of time, but, but I want you to see the words. They, they, they phrase this, and then they made an amendment, uh, I don't know how many years, I think 10 years or whatever later, I forget the exact date. They, they amended it. Not, they didn't take anything out. They just uh, clarified some points. But this is what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. <laughs> like, now you, you can understand why there's this emphasis on Jesus, right? Uh, their words were carefully chosen, that both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. But, I believe this is the amendment, or this is the thing that was tacked on at the, at the, at the bottom of it. But those who say there was a time when he was not, so quoting Arius and Arius' followers, but for those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he was made, yeah, he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, the Son of God is, is created or changeable <clears throat> or alterable. They are condemned by the Holy Catholic, universal, the Holy Catholic Church and Apostolic Church the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So that gives you some sense for it. So then over the years, people have wrestled over, okay, so how do, we, how do we explain the Trinity? Here's the danger with the Trinity, or here's the danger with God. We tend, this is why I read Exodus chapter 20, we, when we don't understand something, we tend as creatures try to bring God low and, and assign creaturely features to him. That is to make God in our, in, in our own image. To make God in our own image is to say, I don't like what, what I read in the Bible or what I've been taught about God or whatever. I don't like that. And, and to make God in an image that doesn't reflect the Bible or what he's ta what's taught in the Bible. So there's different views of the Trinity. Some, said, some say, well, Jesus took on different forms. So, or not Jesus, God took on different forms. So God the Father would wear his Father cap and then he would switch forms and take on the form of a son, and then he would switch forms after that and take on the form of, of the spirit. Uh, you may have heard of illustrations like water, ice, and steam. That is called modalism. That is also heretical and not taught in the Bible. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, another view, uh, is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which is also Arianism, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are created beings who are lesser than the Father, and that is subordinationism. That's what was deemed heretical at the Council of Nicaea, and other councils, by the way. Then the Father, and then another view is that the Father, Son, and the Spirit were three separate deities, and uh, that was viewed as heretical. Heretical. So it was like, you have one-third God, one-third the Father, one-third the Son, and one-third the Holy Spirit. That's tritheism. That's also deemed her heretical. What is the Trinity, what does the Bible teach? And then we're going to get into the scriptures here. God is one as Father, Son, and Spirit who exists eternally as three co-equal and co-eternal persons. That's the definition of the Trinity. Like I said, we'll, I'll do a whole sermon series on the Trinity and we'll, I'll unpack this even more. But let me just say three things before we get into, into the scriptures. One, 
and I said this at the beginning, if the Trinity is something not taught in the Bible, then the church has been wrong regarding its teaching of the nature of God and who he is for nearly 2,000 years. Two, if the doctrine of the Trinity is not taught in the Bible, then for centuries Jesus is not the God that was worshipped, is not God, and the worship of him for 2,000 years as God the Son has been idolatrous because if God is not God, then Christians have worshipped a creature rather than the creator. You see what's at stake? And then three, the majority of serious Bible scholars, church historians, and respectable theologians understand, and this is the majority, by the way, understand that the doctrine of the Trinity was not birthed out of paganism, nor does it have its roots in the Roman Catholic dogma for obvious reasons. Um, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, but I'll quote two men who were, who were uh, discipled by the Apostle John. So there's Ignatius, who lived in A.D. 50 through 117. He said this of the deity of Jesus there is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God and man, true life and death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering and then beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Ignatius. He was mentored by and discipled by the Apostle John. He got that from John, by the way. I'm just, this is the point I'm trying to make. And Polycarp, A.D. 69 through 155, said this, also discipled by the Apostle John, now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in faith and truth and to us with you and to all those under heaven who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. So all that just to say, you know what, the Trinity is not just some weird thing that just somebody came up with. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is not like new furniture put in the new house, which we will identify as the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is like old furniture in a dimly lit room, which is the Old Testament, and it is the light of Jesus, the, you know, the presence of Jesus that shines a light in that dark room where it just becomes much more obvious. And so I want to get into that. So we're going to look at John chapter 17. So we're going to look at three different scripture passages. John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5, and you don't have to stand to, with the reading of this, but I want to read it for you. When Jesus had spoken these words, so Jesus is about to be crucified. This is his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. John chapter 18, he'll be betrayed. Um, so he, he, he prays this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I encourage you to read it sometime. But here's the first five verses of that, of that passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, have, that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." Now, I don't have time to just pick this passage apart. We'll do that in the summer sometime. But I just want to point out a few things. Um, Jesus' prayer comes before his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion. The hour that he's talking about here is he's going to, he's going to lay down his life 
as a sacrifice, as an atonement for the sins of mankind. That's what he's praying about. That's what he's referring to. The first petition that he offers in his prayer is significant. He says, he petitions, he, he pleads with God, uh, the Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, here's the problem with that. Jesus, if Jesus was a created being, he's asking that God would do something for him that God refuses to do for any other creature. So there's a verse, uh, I'll show it to you, it's, uh, and this is not, there's a, a bunch of them. Um, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Jesus is asking for something that God has only reserved for himself. And there's, a, there's the other verses, and just read, download my manuscript. There, those references will be there. The second thing I want to show you in these verses is another petition Jesus gives, and it's in verse 5. He says, uh, And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, Arius would say, well, before the world existed. So Jesus was the first created being. But he's, he's, he's praying for, to experience the glory that he experienced before the world even existed. That after his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God, that's what we learned early in John, Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he would be glorified with the glory he enjoyed before the world existed. Glory that is only resigned to God the Father. And then there's just a whole bunch of passages. I actually have them referenced in my manuscript. Just download it, and um, there's, there's a bunch of them. So that's, that's the first passage. So what is this glory that Jesus was referring to? Well, go to John chapter 1. So if, you, if you're tracking in your Bible, um, which I hope you're seeing this in your Bible, go to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the first five verses, we'll do, I'll read the first five verses and then I'll skip down to verse 14 because, you know, the, the in-between verses are about John the Baptist. But it, it says this, in the beginning, and if you don't have the Bible, the words will be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we go. This is the origin of, of Jesus, which was he existed from all of eternity. But do, if you, have you ever had a, anybody from the Watchtower Society knock on your door? How many of you? You know, they'll go to John chapter 1 sometimes, and they'll say, well, the original Greek doesn't have the definite article in, in, in the first verse. Therefore, it should be translated, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, which is totally bogus. Um, Greek grammar, and, there's, and they ignore all the other examples where there's no definite article in front of God and they translate it, you know, God. Actually, and so, so they, think, they think it's referring to Jesus as a created being, and it is not. Um, anybody that knows anything about Greek knows that the way it's translated is the way it's, it should be translated in just about everybody's Bible. Um, 
Interesting, fun fact, the Watchtower Society has their own translation. So, um, just, just so you know. Um, and to... Because this is a problem, and Arius knew it. This is a problem for that. For if you believe that Jesus was created, um, and that He is not equal with the Father, then then this passage poses a huge problem for you. And I'll just I'll demonstrate it. So, uh, if we go to the yeah, we got it here. Um, so in the beginning was the Word, and this is literally what the Greek will say. In the beginning was. Uh, I think it's to um, logos, to logos, which that's the article, and uh, tos logos, definite article, was with God, and the word was God. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with the God, and the word was God. And in grammar, if if God in this case is being referred to as God, that's here that has the definite article in front of it. You don't need a definite article in front of it. It's supposed to be translated God. So all, some of you are like, what? so what does that mean? It means that what John was saying in the very first verse is that Jesus was not some created being. He's God. In the beginning was the Word, okay? And the Word was with God, okay? So he's with God. And the Word was God, Period. And if anybody was curious, well, what, is, so what happened to the Word? Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Something that, that happened within the fellowship of the Trinity, God the Son took on flesh and became a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, and it doesn't end there. Like, <laughs> The, the Gospel of John, like at the end of John, he, he tells us why he wrote his Gospel account, so that those who read this will know who Jesus is. And uh, he said, there's a lot more that I could have written. Uh, it would have filled up all kinds of libraries, but, but I just, everything that you need to know is in, about Jesus' life is in this Gospel account. But if we, we don't even need to stop there. If you're wondering, well, you know, um, I don't know about that first verse, then what do you do with all the I am passages in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them where Jesus says, ego e me, I, I am. Now, I've in the past connected that with something we read in Exodus where, where Moses is before the burning bush and, and God says, you know, when Moses said, hey, who should I tell the Israelites sent me to them to lead them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt? And God said, tell them I am who I am. And... Um, but that's not the only place that, that, that these I am statements are taken from. Here, here's, a, here's something, if you ever, do, and I would encourage you to read through these I am statements that are in my manuscript. Um, every time Jesus says them, somebody gets upset and wants to kill him. And they accuse him of blasphemy. Why would they do that? There's seven of them. I am, uh, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. That, in, uh, so the Old Testament was originally, you know, mostly Hebrew, some of it Aramaic, and then translated into the Greek Septuagint. Um, in the Greek Septuagint, which you know, would have been available to most likely to, to our early church fathers and 
But the same word construction is used in a, couple of ver- some, a bunch of verses in Isaiah. Ego eimi. And this is why I believe people got upset with Jesus when he said, I am, I am you know, uh, the good shepherd. I am the truth and the life. And I'll just share two of them. There's a bunch of them. Let's, let me, um, let's go. yep, thank you. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Let's read this together. Ready? Who has performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first as, and with the last, I am he, ego am me. Uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, let's read this together. Ready? You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that ego I me, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In fact, John quotes Isaiah a lot in his gospel. And that's why people wanted to kill Jesus. Like he's not this created being. He is equal with the Father. Uh, which, you know, the first chapter, in, uh, the, those first five verses in John would, if you're reading it, you, you probably, if you were here last week, your mind probably went right to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is what I mean. Like the, the, I don't think Moses had a, a full view of what the Trinity was or is um, completely. Just like I don't think Isaiah, when he wrote Isaiah 53, didn't have a complete picture of who Jesus was who would die on a Roman cross. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is like dimly lit, it's like furniture in a dimly lit room. And Jesus brings light to all that. So in light of John chapter 1, and in light of John chapter 17, and there's a whole other bunch of, there's Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, uh, Romans, Ephesians chapter 1, like there's a whole bunch of passages. In light of that, when you read Genesis chapter 1, you're like, oh, that there's this triune God involved, with, involved in creation. And that the word, the, the, the Hebrew word choice for for Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, makes sense in light of what we learn of Jesus in the Gospels and in, in the Epistles and what we learn of the Holy Spirit. You know, that then God said, let what? Let us, uses plural there, let us make man in our own image or in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over all, every creep, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make God a man in our own image. And then, like, as you, you, and this is one of the reasons why Paul could say what he said. I'm bringing this to a close, by the way. This is why Paul could say what he said, or not Paul, Peter, said what he said to Ananias when Ananias and Sapphira lied about what they gave to the church. They, they, they were watching other Christians sell all their property and give it to the mission of the church. Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, let's look good in front of everybody, but let's not, let's not give them everything. Let's give them only partial, uh, partial, you know, par- part of, what we, uh, of the, of the um, stuff that we sold. And so when he stood before Peter, Ananias that is, and Peter said something similar to Sapphira, he said this, 
Why has Satan, right? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the what? Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourselves, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? But to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, and by lying to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Um, and again, I'll do a whole sermon series on unpacking a lot of this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the what? Spirit of God. And then we're like, okay, well, I'm still not convinced. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Because Jesus had just cast out demons out of this individual, and the Pharisees were like, well, it's because of, it's the power of Beelzebub that Jesus is able to do this. And then Jesus makes this statement, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will, for be, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the what? The Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the what? Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And then you're like, well, I'm still not convinced. Okay, well then, what about what Jesus said to his disciples when he commissioned them and the church to, to go and tell people about him, to, tell, to spread the gospel? Let's read this together, ready? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I just want to point something out to you. If Jesus was referring to, to the Father and then himself and the Holy Spirit as subordinate to the Father, that is, created beings lesser than the Father, then why did he use name in the singular tense or the singular case? Why, did, why, why didn't he say names? Or if he's referring to three types of deities, which triathism tritheism would suggest, why didn't he use plural, plural for names? Or if it's different modes, if it's Father, Son, and the Spirit, you know, why did he use singular here? Because he's referring to God, who's a triune being, co-equal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that every time we baptize somebody, we baptize them in the name of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is Yahweh. I mean, that's, that's the point. That's the name. Um, and so, i just leave you with this. Um, God, and, and this is how you reconcile the Trinity with, with Deuteronomy chapter 6, God has no parts. He is, there are no, he's not Shrek. He's not like an onion. <laughs> he's, he's not an egg, shell, yolk, and the white stuff or the clear stuff in there. He is, the, the theological word that's used for is the, the simplicity of God. He is all, 
that he is in equal form. He is love, and he is justice. Like he's just. He's love, he's just. He is holy, and he is love, all in equal part. I'm just naming a few. And as a triune God, he is Father, Son, and Spirit, all in equal part, yet three, three distinct persons. And, um, and the thing that changed, this is next week, the thing that happened, the thing that this, this miracle, the thing that Paul says, like I, this is the mystery, this is this is the marvel, this is this is the crazy thing that, um, that is that Jesus took on human flesh. He took on flesh. Something happened. I was having this conversation. The worship team can come up, by the way. Something happened. It, that changed. It was different. Like, like the plan was always. Just read Ephesians chapter one. You'll see this. The plan was always redemption. It was always redemption. But, uh, and the plan was always that, that the Son would take on flesh. But when he took on flesh, he took on flesh. It wasn't some metaphor. It wasn't some weird thing that happened. Like, he took on flesh. God, when he took on flesh, he, he took on two natures. The one nature has remained the same for all of eternity and continues the same today, and that is the nature of God. And then when he took on flesh and became like us, he took on the nature of a human so that when he, he suffered all the things that we are bound to suffer, he experienced everything that we tend to experience. He, when he went to the cross, he was qualified to go to the cross. That's next week's sermon. He was the kinsman redeemer. He was able to purchase what was lost at creation. He had the ability to do so because he was also, so he's human, he's God, and he was willing to do so. And that will he shared with the Father and the Son, or Father and the Spirit. And, um, and that's, the, that's the mystery. I just leave you with this passage, and then we'll sing this final song. It's, and we'll, I'll talk about this more later. But um, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that's the incarnation but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, not at the name of the Father, but the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul is pulling imagery from Isaiah where it says that every knee and every tongue will confess that Yahweh is God. And Paul's saying, that's what's going to happen with Jesus. Like, that's the amazing thing. If Jesus was not God the Son, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, then the atonement means nothing. And I'm going to talk about that next week. But that's what's at stake. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.